Welcome to the Surrender Podcast. Surrender is a collective of Christian groups and organisations from across Australia. We work in unity to share Jesus' call to seek his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. We create spaces for the sharing of stories that motivate, support and equip people to love their neighbour, share good news and live justly, both locally and globally. Please note, Surrender provides spaces for conversation and storytelling and does not necessarily endorse the personal views of any one presenter. This is Brooke Prentice and Reverend Jeff Broughton's Bible study entitled Justice, Reconciliation and Recognition. Jeff Broughton is a research scholar for the Public and Contextual Theology Research Centre and a lecturer in Practical Theology at St. Mark's National Theological Centre. He's also the rector of Paddington Anglican Church in Sydney. Brooke Prentice is an Aboriginal Christian leader, a descendant of the Waka Waka Nation of Queensland and is the Aboriginal spokesperson for Common Grace. She's also part of Doomba, Tier Australia's Indigenous Support Program and the Salvation Army's Indigenous Reference Group and coordinates the Grass Tree Gathering. Their Bible study will explore what these highly contentious and hotly contested words, justice, reconciliation and recognition, along with their promises and problems, mean for Aboriginal peoples embodying the way of Jesus Christ. This is part one of their Bible study, entitled Embodying Justice, Jesus and Aboriginal Injustices. Uh, well, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Yarning Circle here at uh, Surrender 2017. Uh, my name's Brooke Prentice and this is Reverend Dr. Jeff Broughton. Uh, and thank you for coming to this Bible study this morning. Um, just before we start, I'd just like to do an acknowledgement of country. Uh, and when I do an acknowledgement of country, and later on this afternoon at 4.30, um, we're having the welcome to country, so please get along to that as well. Uh, but an acknowledgement to country for me, a lot of times it's become about political words, but it's much more um, than just words. For me, acknowledgement of country is about hearts and minds coming together through a genuine want and act of building relationship with Aboriginal peoples. And also for me, it's, it's a prayer of thanksgiving to God for placing Aboriginal peoples here as his custodians and caretakers. Um, and we looked after this land for over 60,000 years and still try to play that role today. Um, so that's really what an acknowledgement of country for me is. And I think whenever I travel the country, I always think about whose land I'm on. So as a Waka Waka woman, um, this isn't my country. And so it's important that I recognise those that have gone before me in this land and um, uh, thank uh, the people of this land for allowing me to speak on their country as well. So. Um, together we acknowledge uh, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and gather and yarn today here in this yarning circle. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri peoples uh, and um, we also uh, acknowledge that they have been stewards on behalf of our almighty creator and we pay our respects to their elders and leaders past, present and future. So you've come to a Bible study about justice, reconciliation and recognition. And our Bible study will explore what these highly contentious and hotly contested words, along with their promises and problems, uh, what they mean for Aboriginal peoples in embodying the way of Jesus Christ, and what they mean for non-Aboriginal peoples as well, and uh, how we can come together through that. So we've broken the Bible study up into three parts. So we've got uh, embodying recognition, 
Jesus' guests and hosts, um, which is what we'll actually explore today. Embodying reconciliation uh, and embodying justice and Jesus and Aboriginal injustices over the three days. So really where this Bible study or these Bible studies have come from is uh, um, Jeff asked me to co-write a paper with him that we presented at the Global Network of Public Theology Conference that was held in South Africa in October last year. And uh, we'd both been together at um, those of you that came last year and Uncle Ray Minicon's session in Does Jesus Believe in Land Rights? And uh, Uncle Ray was running a session um, and Jeff and I were there together and we had talked about these words reconciliation and recognition um, and how they had led to the postponement of justice for Aboriginal peoples in this land that we now call Australia. So um, just before I go a bit more into that, um, just as an introduction, uh, so I'm an Aboriginal Christian leader. Uh, my great-grandmother was a Williams from Waka Waka country. I live and have grown up in Redcliffe, uh, which is just north of Brisbane in Queensland, uh, and that's on Gubby Gubby country. Um, and I was born up in Cairns. Uh, and so as an Aboriginal person, when someone asks you where are you from, it's a little bit complicated. Um, but they're all sorts of the connections that um, mean a lot to me. And Waka Waka country is just the next nation over from Gubby Gubby country. So um, there was a lot of interaction between Waka Waka and Gubby Gubby um, uh, for years. Uh, and uh, Reverend Dr. Jeff Broughton uh, is currently the rector at Paddington Anglican uh, Church in Sydney. Uh, and also a lecturer in practical theology at St Mark's Theological College in Canberra. So when Jeff and I uh, presented this paper and from working together, I guess what we're really modelling is an Anglican priest and practical theologian and an Aboriginal leader and Christian activist uh, working together, learning from one another and attempting to find a way for the theological and the practical to learn to walk together. And for me, working together with Jeff is really a very practical example of reconciliation in action for me. I guess my hope through these Bible studies is to give you, perhaps as you listen and listen deeply, is a one story, a one reframe, of the one truth that might help you to see clearly your place in the struggle to bring about justice for Aboriginal peoples in this land that we now call Australia. I guess what Jeff and I have explored through our time together is looking at the words recognition and reconciliation and how they've been used in the political landscape in Australia. Their use in the political has led to the postponement of Aboriginal people's justice in Australia. We've then looked at what the Bible teaches us about recognition and reconciliation. And when we listen to the stories of Jesus, there appears to be an end to the postponement of justice for Aboriginal peoples. However, it takes each of us walking together in the theological, through the political, and that's the political in the houses of parliament, in our churches, and in the communities in which we live. And so for me, it's important as we learn to walk together and we think about walking together, that we think about coming together. And so, as you've come uh, from all parts of Australia to be here at this Bible study, I wanted us to just take two minutes. If we are to walk together, we must get to know one another. So, we want to take this moment to turn to the person next to you for two minutes. <laughs> 
um, and share your name and who's your mob. So that's how we as Aboriginal people often introduce each other. I'll let you interpret that how you'd like to. So if you can turn to the person next to you and name and who's your mob. I just want to take this opportunity to acknowledge my aunties and uncles that are in the room from many different nations and my other Aboriginal brothers and sisters from um, their many nations as well. So today we look at recognition. 
And it's not just merely a complete lack of recognition, but a recognition without dignity and how we can work, walk towards a recognition with dignity. So I belong to a people who have a dreaming, a dreaming that for over 60,000 years taught us and continues to teach us of the creator, how to care for creation and how to live in right relationship with one another. I belong to peoples who for over 2,000 generations have left footprints on this land. I belong to peoples who are part of the world's oldest continuing living culture. However, I also belong to peoples who understand what it is to live the politics of the postponement of justice in Australia. Somehow Australia seems to have been able to avoid and avert being held to account for injustices. Stolen land, stolen wages, stolen generations, and so, so much more. This land uh, has been crying out for justice for nearly 250 years. This land that we are told is young and free. Aboriginal people keep waiting for justice in this land of the fair go. Why are we as Aboriginal peoples often excluded? Why are our voices continually ignored? Why do we seemingly become invisible? For us as Aboriginal peoples, we see a very different Australia to many others. We see an Australia that is in a mess, in chaos, in ruins. An Australia that is broken. An Australia whose heart is sick, is weeping, is broken. We see an Australia that is asleep. We see an Australia that has experienced moments of waking up, but we see an Australia that fails to stay awake. This failure to stay awake has led to reconciliation and recognition becoming weak and empty names, complacent and cheap names. Australia always seems to be taking a first step towards Aboriginal justice. The cult of forgetfulness strikes again and again and personally, as is many Aboriginal people, I'm tired of taking our first steps. When will we ever take our second and third steps? To see an end to the postponement of justice, it's crucial that we walk together. I guess for me, the simple fact of whether Australia is 250 years old or 60,000 years old goes to the very heart of how recognition without dignity or just plain lack of recognition has led to this postponement of justice for Aboriginal peoples. The long range debate has been whether Australia was invaded or settled. Ask any Aboriginal person and the answer is always invaded. Stan Grant, an author and journalist in his book, Talking to My Country says this, Australia still can't decide whether we were settled or invaded. We have no doubt. Our people died defending their land and they had no doubt. The result was the same for us, whatever you call it. Within a generation, the civilizations of the Eastern seaboard, older than the pharaohs, were ravaged. This is a recognition of our true history. A true history that is only in 2016 uh, starting to be taught in the Australian education system through the national curriculum. Recognition in the Australian political context has always been hard for Aboriginal peoples. We know we were here first. God knows we were here first. God placed us here as his caretakers of his wondrous creation. 
For 60,000 years, our recognition was established in our dreaming stories and knowledge of the Creator Spirit. In the last 250 years, our recognition has been determined by foreigners. Firstly, the English and under British law, and then under the changing landscape of the state colonies, and then finally in the last 116 years, under the politically invented concept of Australia. The summary of those who have determined our recognition has for a majority of the time denied not only our dignity, but also our recognition and even our existence. We need look no further than the lie of terra nullius that existed until 1992, and in the minds of some Australians still exists today. Last year, there were newspaper articles and shows on TV that had people still calling us primitive, simple, the Stone Age, and that can still be seen today. And so now I just want to take us on a brief step through our modern history. So this last 250 years and how recognition, how we look at recognition. The 29th of April, 1770, Captain Cook denies our dignity when upon seeing men, women and children, he takes out his musket and fires three rounds. The 26th of January, 1938, Sir William Cooper gathers with other Aboriginal leaders as the day of mourning to present and plead for the granting of dignity. It would take another 30 years for this to happen. He said, we, representing the Aborigines of Australia, assembled at the Australian Hall in Sydney on the 26th of January, 1938, this being the 150th anniversary of the white man's seizure of our country, hereby make protest against the callous treatment of the white man of our people in the past 150 years, and we appeal to the Australian nation to make laws, new laws, for the education and care of Aborigines and for a new policy that will raise our people to full citizen status and equality within the community. For me, these words could still be repeated today, another 100 years later. The 14th and 28th of August, 1963, the Yakala Bark Petitions being the first, yes, the very first legal documentary recognition of Aboriginal peoples in Australian law. 27th of May, 67, the successful referendum, 15th of April 1991, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, where today we have more Aboriginal deaths in custody than any time before the Royal Commission. The 3rd of June 1992, uh, and the Mabo case and the overturning of Terra Nullius. 26th of May 1997, the Bringing Them Home report, where we finally recognised the stolen generations. But then it would be many years later and not until the 13th of February 2008 that an apology from the floors of Parliament House was given to the stolen generations. So this is so many first steps, so many wake-up moments. So why do we continue to go back to sleep? Why can't we stay awake? Why can't we take our second and third and fourth steps? 23rd of March 2017, we are the only Commonwealth nation and one of the last liberal democracies to not have a treaty with its first peoples. God has been all-seeing and all-knowing to peoples in this land for over 60,000 years. Firstly, to an ancient and living peoples, and then to the later comers. The Dutch, the English, the Germans, the Scottish, the Irish, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, and so on and so on and so on. And as I asked you at the beginning, who is your mob? 
And so with that, we'll lead into the theological application. Um, so we're just going to get Jordan to come and read from Luke 19, 1 to 9, and then I'll hand over to Jeff. Yeah, just before I read it, I'd like to just to pray and ask the Lord to bless this word to our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray then, Father, as we go into your word, Father God, I just pray, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, Lord, will just guide us and open our hearts to your word, Lord, and just to keep it in our hearts all day, Lord, just ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Zechariah, the tax collector. Jesus was entering to Jericho. He was passing through. A man was there, named by Zechariah. He was a tax collector. He was worthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached to the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacharias, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be a guest with a, with a, of a sinner. But Zechariah stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possession to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out, anybody out of anything, I'll pay, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this, to this house, because this man to is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. As Brooke mentioned in her intro, it's a, been a privilege for us to not talk together but to walk together and for our friendship to grow as we have thought about these issues and I guess one of the things I hope that we get uh, out of this morning, uh, the three mornings and I'm going to sneak up on this passage from Luke 19 slowly, is that to truly see ourselves and each other, to truly recognise ourselves and each other, something has to happen. Uh, it's not just an out there and I guess what we're saying is Hopefully we are modelling also what we're talking about. Um, the image I want to you know, leave with this morning from this particular story of Zacchaeus is one of a reversal. And that's something that takes place. Uh, the kingdom is often pictured as a kingdom of reversals. If you have a Bible with you, back a few chapters earlier in Luke 13, uh, Jesus actually with one of his more famous images of the kingdom of heaven or what will eventually happen is of a great feast a great feast where those will come from the east and the west, the north and the south it's a fairly familiar passage it's actually a, a wonderful image of welcome, of inclusion of a whole lot of things but hidden in this great image and often we skip over this particularly those of us like me who are used to being hosts is there's a reversal going on. See, the common Jewish assumption was it was their descendants 
Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the prophets, those who are descending, who would be found at this table. But quite shockingly, it's not the descendants of the privileged ones. It is those from east, west, north and south. And that well-known phrase, even known outside Christian circles, is introduced here. Behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Kind of underlining this image of reversal. Some scholars, in fact, have found this so important. Uh, one ethicist named Alan Verdi's called his work The Great Reversal. I think that's one of the central things uh, Jesus was on about, this great reversal. Too often the church, churches I belong to, and if I think about the first 30 years of my upbringing in the church and then churches I actually worked in, we've been too content to affirm what Jesus says, this great idea of a great banquet where everyone's included, everyone's welcome. That's easy to sort of sign up to, but much harder to actually embrace it. And one of the themes of this weekend is embracing the way. So what does it mean to embrace this way of seeing each other, seeing ourselves and the reversals that are involved? And to do that, we're going to sneak up on Luke 19, but between this great image of reversal, this great thing from Luke 13 and Luke 19, where we're going to land with the Zacchaeus, are three, what I'm going to call, warning parables, mainly in Luke 16 to 19. Three warning parables because they are about rejecting God's reversal. So we've got this image of a great reversal and then three instances, a parable of a rich man and his poor neighbour Lazarus, uh, who spells out a graphic reversal of fortunes in Luke chapter 16. And I think can be a warning to rich, city-dwelling, non-Aboriginal people, and if it sounds like I just described myself, I have, but hopefully some of us sitting around here, who uh, eclipse and ignore the, if I can stretch the metaphor, the Aboriginal Lazaruses living at our national gate. And so the warning in that parable, I think, has a direct warning to many of us sitting here. The second warning parable is of a religious leader's piety, prayer and pride the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, remember the guy up to pray, that fails to secure him the righteousness he desires, serves as a warning to people of faith whose pride displaces justice for Aboriginal peoples. And again, if you hear me talking to myself as a religious leader, I am, but hopefully not just to myself. And the third warning parable in Luke 18, it's a story of a rich ruler who wishes to inherit life, life eternal, but who tries to avoid the fate of the rich man in Luke 16. So there's some progress here. The guy in Luke 16 is just hopeless. He has no inkling. He lives his whole life with this poor Lazarus at his gate and it makes no impact on him. This guy in Luke 18, at least in his richness, realises there's something more. He desires something of the eternal. So there's progress here, but he leaves sad. The original word here is not just a sort of sadness, a real almost sort of despair, depression. 
because he can't do what Jesus asked. He can't embody the way. And again, that's a warning to rich Australians, those of us who love our acquisitions, look what I'm holding, our toys who accumulate wealth, whether that's property or investments, who love that more than justice for Aboriginal people. Who by contrast, we know last Thursday we had the progress, or really a failure in progress and the closing the gap. And the great gap that still exists in many measures. So all of this is a warning to those who reject this great reversal that Jesus pictures, that's what kingdom of heaven. And so we get to Luke 19 that was read for us, this story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. And I guess if anything marks Zacchaeus' life up for the man of this story, is he's in getting mode. He's pretty good at it. He knows how to get what he wants. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And so when we meet this Zacchaeus guy, he is a tax, or again, perhaps closer to the original, toll collector. And I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Uh, we know, and probably you've heard this story before, this is not a popular character for either Jesus' hearers or those reading this story, but he is powerful. Um, we know that many of the Jews were revolted by tax collectors, hence we often find that phrase right throughout the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners. Um, they were not like. But these toll collectors uh, is a helpful to think about as told because it describes the way they went about their collecting. Similar to in our cities with contemporary motorway tolls, tolls are positioned where they're going to make the most amount of money because of the most amount of traffic and that's exactly what tax or toll collectors did. Uh, instead of some predetermined tax amount, the Romans would appoint these toll collectors who would set themselves up in the busiest part of the traffic if you were trying to trade anything and then they would go through, pour on their way through whatever you're carrying, a bit like you're screening at an airport, and based on what you're carrying, your wealth, they would determine the toll. So it's obviously open to abuse, corruption, all those kinds of things. They were servants of the Roman Empire, so people knew they were overcharging, lining their own pockets. That's how they became rich. So toll collectors were, were driven by, I guess, greed's another word, but by this getting mode. And most of them were very good at it and became quite rich as a result of it. So we meet this Zacchaeus, this successful, rich toll or tax collector. Powerful and greedy. And in this little figure, let's not miss it, we often focus on sort of things that are probably not that important, like his height and all those kinds of things. But here, don't we have just a little window into privilege and entitlement. People who are used to being the hosts, where they're leaders of government, CEOs of large corporations. But let's not just point the finger out there. Let's be honest, for many of us, it's a window into our own hearts. Things like power and greed become intoxicating. You think you just want a little bit, just a little bit more. A little bit more power, and you want more power and influence. You just want a little bit more money, a little bit more security. It becomes intoxicating. Yet all is not well, well in this 
world of Zacchaeus. He's desperate, we're told, to see Jesus. So desperate, he raises ahead of the crowd to climb a tree. Despite his wealth and power, there is some lack, some hole, perhaps, as Augustine said, some unmet longing or loneliness. And at this point, and you've probably heard Bible teachers, preachers, and I've probably been guilty of it myself, we, are, we then play amateur psychologists into Zacchaeus' inner world. What's going on here? And I don't want to do that because Zacchaeus can be contrasted to a couple of those other figures I just introduced you to in these earlier chapters. Figures we've already met exactly like him in Luke's Gospel. That rich man who lived his entire life with Lazarus, his poor neighbour at the gate. The story of the rich ruler who wanted to inherit eternal life but could not engage in the kind of reversals. And in light of the stunning failure of these two anonymous rich men, where their power, their wealth, their privilege, their role as hosts in a society failed to secure either their deeper longings or their eternal future, we should be anticipating in this story, what's going to happen to this third rich guy who suddenly has got a name Zacchaeus? What's going to happen to him? Is he going to suffer the same fate as the guy in Luke 16 and the Luke 18? We seem to be we've been following this story. A profound reversal must happen in his life. That's what Jesus said the kingdom was like, a kingdom of reversals. And we've had three stories of people who cannot embrace or embody those reversals. And so in the second part of the story begins in verse 8. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he carried down and was happy to welcome him. You like that? Zacchaeus was happy to welcome Jesus, literally to receive Jesus. And I think we can understand this at a number of levels. Jesus, the guest, invites himself to Zacchaeus, the host's place. And even in our culture, that's kind of rude. You don't invite yourself somewhere for a meal. But Zacchaeus is happy as the host. This is reaffirming his status, his privilege. He is the host. He's happy to play the host. This is what life is like for him. That's what power and wealth and privilege afford you. You can easily be the host. You can be generous in a little way at the edges if your main mode of life has been getting. The rich and powerful receives, welcomes Jesus. And there's an important insight to how reversals begin. Unprepared to receive Jesus as the two previous rich guys in Luke's stories, they don't even get to first base. Here, Zacchaeus at least takes the first important step. And many of our churches, many Christians, many of my friends, many of my colleagues, and both the churches, other priests in the Anglican Church, or people teaching theology in our theology colleges, get this much. We understand the importance of this much but we miss what happens next. Getting mode is now gone for Zacchaeus. Giving mode begins. There is a great reversal. Why? Because Jesus is the true host. And encountering Jesus as the true host, Zacchaeus perhaps for the first time recognises, sees his own true need. 
Zacchaeus, the greedy, getting no case, is now the needy guest. And the good news is, the good news of the gospel, Jesus is a generous host who loves to give. And Zacchaeus, in receiving generosity from Jesus, is transformed by the one who says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Imagine how that rattled around in a person whose whole life had been getting made. Extracting what you could from the vulnerable. And here's this host, He's been truly generous to him, says it is more blessed now to give than to receive. And he immediately sets about giving to those he'd stolen from. The two previous rich guys we met in the story earlier could not be generous because they had not learned how to receive. They had it all except for knowing how to receive from others. They had only learned to get, to take. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abram. Now let me move from strict Bible interpretation to how we start to embody this even in symbolic or in the language some of us are more used to, sacramental ways. Brooke said, I am an Anglican priest and that is true. And uh, this is actually one of the stoles I wear. It's for those who are in the know. It's not the right colours for this season. This colours uh, not the season of Lent, which is purple, but it is, as you can see, a reconciliation stole um, given to me at my ordination when I was nearly 20 years ago, not quite. Uh, it was John Stanley and Alison King's Cross Darlinghurst. This was a, a, an important gift and I wear it with pride when I can. But this stole says something about what happens at that Eucharist. So let me just move into talking about this. Rich and powerful hosts, like Zacchaeus, like many of us, particularly those of us non-Aboriginal, are used to being the hosts. We are used to being in control. If freed from our greed for power and wealth by a truly generous host, this is what should happen when we receive the sacraments, we should be transformed so that we can then give generously, as has happened to Zacchaeus. So when we receive bread and wine, for those who are used to doing that, we not only should remember our own need as we hold out our empty hands, that's part of the symbolism, my hands are empty until they're filled, but I also remember the needs of my neighbours, the world's needs, to empower me to get out of getting mode into giving mode, to become, like Jesus, a generous host. So just for the salvos in the room, we must remember that uh, every time that we were together around food, we were meant to participate in this way as well. So every time we have a meal, not uh, obviously non-sacramental. So it's in this true recognition of Jesus, seeing ourselves as we really are, as Zacchaeus did, recognition of Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal brothers and sisters, we have this great reversal that Jesus says an image of what heaven will be like actually ruptures into our present experience. And so there are many forms used. Obviously, Anglican tends to be more traditional. This is one form of the words I use fairly regularly in introducing what we're about to do. Jesus was always the guest. In the homes of Peter and Jairus, Martha and Mary, Joanna and Susanna, he was always the guest. 
At the meal tables of the wealthy where he pled the case of the poor, he was always the guest, upsetting polite company, befriending isolated people, welcoming the stranger, he was always the guest. But here, at this table, he is the host. Those who wish to serve him must first be served by him. Those who want to follow him must first be fed by him. Those who would wash his feet must first make, let him make them clean. For this is the table where God intends us to be nourished. This is the time when Christ can make us new. So come, you who hunger and thirst for a deeper faith, for a better life, for a fairer world. Jesus Christ, who has sat at our table, now invites us to his. At the Eucharist, at the Lord's Supper, at the ordinary meal that the salvos share together. Non-Aboriginal peoples are not merely a welcoming host. We're used to playing that role. At the Eucharist, we non-Aboriginal peoples discover we are a guest. Now, I'm going to use first-person speech here because I need to remind myself this every time I do it, but hopefully you can appropriate this for yourself. Taking the Eucharist, taking the bread and wine, I discovered that I am not at the centre of God's story, that Jesus Christ is. Yet receiving the Eucharist, I discover that Christ, the true host, the generous host, welcomes me into the very life of God. This is true naming, this is true recognition, this is seeing myself as I really am. And standing at the Eucharist, as a non-Aboriginal person, I also recognise that I am not the host on this land once called Terra Nullis. <coughs> the Eucharistic reversal means that in fact I am a guest on someone's country, gifted to Aboriginal ancestors in the time of dreaming. I am no more at the centre of Australia's story than I am at the centre of God's story. And again, this is true confessing, this is naming the reality. See myself as I really am. Yet together at the Eucharist, when, especially when Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people are able to break bread together, I can be deeply transformed by becoming that guest, welcomed in Christ by the ancient hosts of this land and its culture and its dreaming. And that's what I've experienced in my friendship with Brooke. And we have actually broken bread together, both formally and many times informally. That is the great reversal that Jesus pictures that happens. And Rowan Williams, one of my current heroes, says we're to live as people who know we are always guests. And so each week there's a weekly reminder for me as much as I love to play the host, to be in control, to assume the role of being privileged because of power and wealth and status and all those things. True dignity, truly seeing myself, is first and foremost as a guest. Only as I see myself as a guest, both in Christ and in this land now called Australia, can I be truly generous. If I don't do that, I'm going to be like all those other rich guys in Luke's story. Unable to receive. Got to become a guest to receive. And if I can't receive, 
from the true host Jesus Christ, if I can't receive from hosts of this country, the ancestors we acknowledged at the beginning, I can never be truly generous. We're going to go to questions now. You want to say something about that? Um, I guess just what I'll say is seeing we're here at Surrender, Surrender holds a um, close place to my heart. And for me, this is one of those examples of a great reversal um, in terms of the Christian church in this country where um, Surrender truly embraces us, um, not just as Aboriginal peoples, but as friends, as equal partners. And um, yeah, it's a great experience to be here. And I hope you get to meet, there's over 100 Aboriginal people from all across um, Australia here this weekend, so take the time to get to know us um, while you're here at Surrender. We will talk less over the next two days. This is the first day we go for a while, but it's time for questions and answers now. Um, some of your engagement, what we've been talking about, yeah, yeah. Mike, a bit closer to me, that's okay. That would have been helpful 40 minutes ago, but anyway, there we go. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I guess what, what you're talking about with the Eucharist, with the Lord's Supper, that's kind of a symbolic way of doing that. Are there any sort of more practical ways that you see that going on or that you've been participating in that, um, recognising that we're actually, that as settler people, we're actually guests? Uh, well, as I mentioned, part of what Brooke and I have been doing together is a, a step beyond the symbolic. This is actually um, genuine where we're inviting each other into spaces. So I don't think there would have been too many sort of theological academic conferences Brooke would have been thinking of going to. And probably I wouldn't be here at Surrender if Brooke hadn't invited me in. So I think that's part of that. I, I, there's so much more than we can be doing. I've um, in something I've published, I suggested that churches should be at least opening up their spaces or even giving properties. For, for a number of years, I was um, rector of the Anglican Church in Glebe, where Tranby College has been more than 50 years. It started as a gift of a property from an Anglican church. Just said, here's this property. Glebe was a rundown, poor working class area. And it said, basically, you know, there wasn't a lot of personal investment, but it was at least a gift of land and property. And I don't think that's insignificant. And the wonderful gift that Trandy College has been to many Aboriginal people over, you know, I've met when, when I've been in Queensland teaching far north Queensland, Father Wayne Connolly, he actually said, oh, I went there as a 16 year old, long before I was in Glebe, but you know, so the gift that has been to Aboriginal people generally, but particularly Aboriginal Christians, is a place to come and learn and stuff. So that's, you know, that's a next step of being a host with what we have with enormously privileged. How can we open that up for shared use? Um, I guess one of the things for me, and it uses the passage that we looked at, so when we look at Luke 19, 8, and I add some extra words in there, and so when I read it, I said, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to Aboriginal peoples, and if I have cheated any Aboriginal peoples through the generations out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount to Aboriginal peoples. So as an Aboriginal Christian leader, I lived the reality of the churches pretty much giving us the scraps that are left over. Our ministries are struggling, um, Aboriginal leadership isn't supported, 
Um, and so that's, for me, one really practical way. Imagine if a head of church said that and we think about all the wrongs that have been done to Aboriginal people, including Aboriginal Christians, um, over many generations. Um, we have a lot to think about in this nation. Um, and also, doing this with Jeff, I told Jeff when we started out on this that it was actually part of my healing journey to be able to work with a theologian. Um, I'm a chartered accountant by profession, uh, but had looked at, I ran an Aboriginal church um, for 12 months before it was defunded. Um, and I went to a theological college, a non-denominational one, and the vice principal met me at the door and it was an information session. Um, and uh, he said, what brings you here? And I said, oh, look, I'm really passionate about Aboriginal Christian leadership development. He obviously not realising I was Aboriginal. And um, I said, do you have any Aboriginal students? And he said, oh, no, studying doesn't fit with their culture. And so that's part of the reality that we live every day. So to be able to do this, um, Jeff has recognised me for some of my giftings and skills and I've recognised him as well and to be able to do this um, together um, has been quite an experience. So, yeah. And I guess in the more political sense, uh, for me, and I only briefly mentioned it, but if we are to have true recognition with dignity, for me, the only way that we can do that as a nation is through a treaty and, and treaties. So treaty, I think there's a symbolic treaty on a national scale that needs to happen. Um, one of the visions I have is imagine if on the floor of parliament they read out all three, over 300 of our nation's names. Um, true recognition with dignity um, would be something that would mean something to me. And for me, treaty is the only way we can come together as equal participants to work out how this relationship will work in this nation. Part of my healing to work with a theologian said only one person ever used to it. It's on tape. Look, Prentice. Yeah. Well, I'm speaking from my own personal point of view, and um, why have I, as a 75-year-old white-skinned Australian woman who's attended church all her life until the last six months, been in four different Protestant denominations, attended a Bible college, never been fronted with the fact that she comes from first-class white skin privilege until I opened up Chet Meyer's book, We Will Roll Away the Stone. Why have I not been confronted with that? Because the scales were on my eyes as they are on countless number of white privileged Australians in the churches. And they do not understand and they are blind. Why haven't, why has it taken this long in my life in the church? It sounds like I'm being trying to be funny, but I'm not. But we still stone our prophets or take them outside the city gates. Like Jed's Jed been a friend for 25 years, um, but you know, but people. That's, that's but that's not an answer. This is why I say. No, no. Rising up in me, I hear mm. for the first time. Yeah. I want to cry. Yes. For the first time, I really want to cry because the scales are gone from my eyes. Ooh. They have been there. And I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed that I've lived in this country for 75 years as a white, privileged woman who does not understand, who has not listened to their story. Chet said, we have to listen. It has to come from them. We have to hear them. Every church in Australia needs to be down on their knees and crying out to God for forgiveness. For forgiveness. And it's not about money. 
We'll talk more about this tomorrow. Yeah, no, we'll talk more about this tomorrow. I, I can't explain it apart from saying it's a great shame. That a genuine, not a, po- a point of shame. It, it brings shame on us. It's a shameful thing that that's true, what you said. I don't disagree with you. But I think in many of our churches, it's hard to have a prophetic voice. Either individual or Well, we could write letters to the heads of churches, and if Aunty Jean was here, she'd be saying this, to ask them to, in the Bible colleges, have us come and talk, um, create the space to learn from Aboriginal Christian leaders. And again, why, why what's happening here at Sooner Sun Because I think some of them do know, but it's so hard to embody that way. Like, to be honest, like, a, what? What? But if we did the Eucharist properly, maybe we'd begin. And that's, that's starting to embody, yeah, or shared meals. Yeah. But, so I think, yeah. Um, I wonder, I wonder whether part of it is um, not, not having a, a true understanding of reconciliation and biblical reconciliation. And I know that um, growing up I've heard people say, oh, you just need to forgive and get over it. Tomorrow's talk. Oh, Bible study. Oh, oh. Yep, that's oh, going to be the whole tomorrow. morning tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Because I wonder if there is something about, yeah, about that. Oh, come mm. on. <laughs> um, this is more of a comment, not really. I just would like to say thank you for articulating that devotion um, really well. And I, I actually believe it should be a film or something and, and you know, go and get a moral on social media. <laughs>
Nearly 10 when you're only June. I was going to say, it's nearly 30 years. Yeah. Just to relate to that lady, she's saying, why, why, why? Yeah. So because we brought it up to see the needs and it's packaged well and it's marketed well, I think even with the Indigenous thing, the cause hasn't been presented to the church. So I honestly don't believe there's a lot of racist people in the church that there's not. I think it's just an ignorant thing where we, we haven't educated the church to say, hey, there's a huge need here, there's a cause, let's give to that, let's get behind that and let's reach a need. Church has got about a ticket to heaven, and I've made it, and I've made it, why do I bother about anything else? I'm on the way to heaven, so I don't have to worry about anybody else, because I've made it, and that's my problem with the church today. Sure. We had one more here, and then we're going to be out of time. Yeah. Comment. For me, like, I've been a Christian for only six years, so I consider myself still relatively new, but I read the Bible, and the Bible makes sense, and it talks about loving others, looking after your mob, Only one response to that, and that's preach. <laughs> preach. <laughs> preach. No, you're you're preaching a good word. I'm saying you've got the word. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we need you preaching. <laughs> This is one of many conversations recorded live at Surrender 17 Melbourne. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and check out our website surrender.org.au for more resources and opportunities to get involved.